0: friends the strange horizons sff
1: criticism podcast i'm dan hartland i'm aisha
0: subramanian Uh, it's been several months since the last episode of this podcast some of our listeners will know that maureen kinkade speller with whom we started this thing passed away in september of last year this episode is being released as part of a special memorial issue at strange horizons where the two of us with maureen have been reviews editors since 2015
1: Back in 2018, Maureen and I took part in a long conversation with Jonah Sutton Moss for his podcast, Cabbages and Kings. That episode was never actually published, and Jonah was kind enough to dig out the recording for this special issue. We're so glad that this means we get to include some of Maureen's own critical work in this tribute to her. Here's Jonah introducing the episode.
2: I don't remember exactly when I became aware of... Marine Speller, but I first met her in 2015. My name is Jonah sutton Morrison. and at the time I hosted a podcast called Cabbages and Kings. And in my first episode, I said that I had read The Buried Giant and not really known what to do with it or what to make of it. And soon thereafter, I had An email in my inbox from the senior reviews editor of Strange Horizons, which published the reviews and criticism that I most envied online, and who I knew only as a person with a very intense-looking osprey as her virtual representation. And the email said, Let's talk about the buried giant! Mm. And... Those who knew Marine will know that saying there is this interesting book and I don't quite know what to make of it is kind of sending up a bat signal for her, but I didn't realize it at the time. And so I was somewhat trepidatious um, and we had an absolutely delightful conversation that spanned... Grief and memory, and discussion of landscapes, and Tolkien's translation of Sir Gawain, and
0: how funny people still are about genre.
2: And during that conversation, she shared with me a version of her notion of what the critic's job is.
0: I mean, I I love books where you constantly have some arguing or. I suppose there is a level on which I read novels kind of like a detective story. There's always a sort of process of um, analysis and attempting to unpack the novel. I often feel quite uncomfortable about that. It's the critical practice I've been taught, and at the end of it, I still need to be able to knit the novel back together you know, and actually make it into a whole, because otherwise I I feel I've, I've failed the novel myself. And it was splendid,
2: and I published it, and we... Became more and more friends after that, and we chatted sometimes and had various Zoom conversations and Slack conversations, and also sometimes recorded episodes for the podcast. We went over the Clark Award shortlist nominees at one point, and later had a book club discussion that included both Watership Down and The Stone Boatman, and it was wonderful. Because Maureen was wonderful, and what she loved, as far as I could tell, above all else, other than maybe taking care of the cats and Mort's escapades, was talking about books that were worth talking about with other people who wanted to talk about books. And I got to do that, and... A thing... I think it's easy sometimes to think that critics are interested in criticism and therefore not interested in joy and celebration. And I hope that hearing this other brief excerpt from our discussion might persuade you that Maureen was always interested in joy and celebration.
0: I know what we need to talk about, Jonah. Yes? We need to talk about the boatman.
2: We did talk about. The boatman that day, and and we talked about the stone boatman, and much later, uh, we got together with Aisha and talked about three books: one epic fantasy, one steampunk alternate history, and one collection of contemporary short stories with a uh, magical realism inflection. We talked about. Everfair and the Winged Histories and Temporary People. And we did that in 2018, at which point my podcast was already mostly on hiatus. And by the time I got it edited into shape, the podcast was entirely on hiatus, and life and work and family were happening. And then Maureen was sick. And then it was very clear that I was never going to be able to have another conversation like that again. And it was not really very clear that the conversation that we had would ever really have a home anywhere. Um, but it does. And I'm very grateful to Strange Horizons for making the space to include this recording, which is a little over an hour of Maureen getting to talk about books that were worth talking about with other people who like talking about books. And I hope that it may bring you as much joy as it brought me. And so without further ado. My conversation with Maureen Speller and Aisha about Temporary People, ever fair, and The Winged Histories. Um, it's
1: nine o'clock in the UK, which means it's something like two in the morning uh, in India.
0: At two o'clock is about the time Mort will decide it's... Um... Time for another meal or something and come in and wake Paul up.
2: <laughs> well, he's been having very interesting sleep schedule recently. And so, yeah, yesterday it was one in the morning, climbing into bed with us.
0: Yes, yeah, it's, it's kind of engaging when it's a cat, not so much possibly when you're... Uh...
2: I mean it's cute every once in a while but I was thinking maybe Aisha this this feels like it's sort of right up your alley so I was I was thinking maybe we could start with just a little bit of musing on empire and violence and colonialism and whether you saw threads there that you found particularly interesting and maybe you could you could kick us off a little bit with with what you saw between the three books. When I picked Temporary People
1: I wasn't expecting it to have exactly the same links to the other two books as it turned out to do. But with all three, I think the thing that really stood out for me was the sense of these quite polyphonic narratives in telling the story of a people. And obviously what a people means changes depending on which book you're talking about. Um, sometimes it's a subgroup within a nation. Sometimes it's the story of a nation and so forth. But it felt to me that all three books were really interested in multiple voices and in putting those things together into some sort of larger narrative in very different ways as it pans out. but but those were some of the things that i found really important and obviously with everfair and the winged histories the way that that is interpolated by empire is a lot more obvious in that everfair is written within a history that we recognize and understand and um the winged histories is about an empire that says it's an empire and is very clearly thinking of itself in ways that we recognize as imperial. I don't know that that's necessarily true of temporary people. But again, there's still so much to be said about power and who wields it and nationhood and also citizenship.
0: I'd also like to pick up the point of the sort of polyphony of voices. The first time I read Everfair, I had a certain amount of trouble getting to grips with it, and until Aisha raised it just now, I hadn't really thought about um, the way in which it occurs in temporary people and also in The Winged Histories. I'm wondering now if the idea of sort of the polyphony of voices is is a condition, can a novel actually successfully discuss uh, topics such as empire? Uh, and colonialism, if it doesn't actually use that polyphony of voices. So I shall leave that there for us to think about. The basic idea behind this book is that it's effectively attempting to write an alternative version of the reign of King Leopold II over the Congo a Free State. It's really quite hard to describe exactly what King Leopold II and his people did to the Congo Free Strait, but uh, if I quote from the beginning of the uh, novel, The Historical Note, the exact number of casualties is unknown, but conservative estimates admit that at least half the populace disappeared in the period from 1895 to 1908. The area thus devastated was about a quarter of the size of the current continental United States. Millions of people died. As I said, I've been particularly interested in this, having read Shields. book. It's a pretty grim read, unsurprisingly, but also intensely moving, the way he explores uh, what went on and writes about it. I I found it very powerful when I first read it. But what I was also interested in, uh, I have this kind of love-hate relationship with steampunk. I'm still not quite sure what steampunk is for but I was interested in the idea of actually tackling a historical issue like King Leopold's reign over the uh, Congo Free State and trying to write an alternative version of it in which King Leopold was defeated. And in the end, I I found that the... The steampunkiness of it was much more subtle than I'd expected it to be. I think I've just read some of the steampunk I've read has been sort of lavishly, um, how come one said it, fondling the machinery. in (laughs) in, in uh, In a narrative sense, it dwells so much upon the machinery. It doesn't actually think about the ways in which one might use technological developments the first time I read it, I was not very sure what she was actually doing with the narrative structure. Having come back and read it again, my head is in a better place for dealing with this. One of the things she does is to actually go from somewhere in the mid uh, actually starts off in 1889, but goes all the way up to pretty much uh, 1916, which of course in our world is part way into the First World War. And although there is something that's analogous to the First World War in Everfair, it all turns out rather differently. But what I was very struck by was the way the narrative was structured as a, a series of almost snapshots dipping into developments. And so we sort of drop back in each year or over a period of months and see what's going on. But it does not actually engage in lavish explanations. It's left to the reader to put things together. You know, there's a series of glimpses, uh, which I actually found very very interesting because it makes me work as a reader but it also means that the novel is actually able to cover a fairly broad range of not only you know sort of period of time but also multiple viewpoints and a lot of different issues and it's sort of left to the reader to sort of actually think through and work it out for themselves it's quite surprising actually in that I think it's very quick fire in one way almost the same kind of technique you find in certain kinds of uh, thriller writing you know sort of kind of boom, 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 moving on to the next thing. But spread over a period of time like that, you're sort of dipping it in and out. You're able to see how people's attitudes change or don't change. But what I particularly liked was the ways in which she was um, exploring multiple approaches to, I suppose, what we'd call uh, issues of diversity now, but also micro-racisms, you know, the way that people regard themselves on the one hand as, I suppose, what we'd say now as woke. And on the other hand, they've got all their little prejudices that they can't quite bring themselves to address. The more as I've read on the second time, the more excited I became with the whole thing, you know, seeing how it fits together. It's so beautifully done.
2: Yes, I felt like this definitely rewarded a second reading, in part because I struggled with finding a sort of coherent shape to the second half of it the first time through. And I think the second time I was more conscious of sort of the project and what was being shown and... But it wasn't the story of Ever fair the Nation State as I had initially imagined. But I'm gonna put a pin in that for a minute and say, Aisha, what resonated from what Maureen said for you? I
1: think um one of the things that you said, Maureen, about the the number of things that it manages to touch on because of that format was really important to me when I was reading it. A couple of years ago I reviewed a book by Bizarrely, Kevin Costner, which was, a, that. which was a sort of pastiche boy's own adventure novel thing set during World War I, so really quite close in time to this, that had many issues, to put it mildly. But one of the things about it that I really enjoyed and that I kept coming back to and thinking about was the way that novels set in imperial contexts, are able to be so big in terms of their geography, Mm -hmm. um, in part because they've got that sort of imperial superstructure that makes a really obvious link between what's happening in this corner of the world and what's happening in this corner of the world. And I think that that aspect of its setting is something that Everfair really uses beautifully you've got these wonderful shifts both in time and perspective and in geography you've got things happening in Britain you've got things happening in France and they are directly relevant to what is happening in and around Everfair and Everfair in turn affects what's happening in those countries it's one of the things that I think we lose in the 20th century and it it is good that one of the reasons we lose it is decolonization obviously this is not a plea for empire to come back (laughs) um but i think that that sense of the bigness of the world is something that a science fiction writer is in a really good position to Mm. exploit it's just that sense of how lots of things come together and fit together and bump up against each other. And just the the amount of research in this is incredible.
0: Yes, it wears its research very lightly, I think, in some ways. It It just feels like deep, vast knowledge. Mm. I remember how when we all read Hilled at some point, I think, didn't we do that for a Strange Horizons book club? We were all sort of overwhelmed overwhelmed by the amount of research. And then I suddenly thought, Yes, but this is a book that does not wear its research very lightly. Which is not to say it's not a remarkable book, but I found I became quite tired because there was so much in it being pushed at me. Whereas Everfair, there was a really wonderful balance between the story, you know, the sort of narrative pushing it on, all these people we kept encountering over and over again, and everything around it. I think this is what I actually feared about the steampunk elements of it. I was going to be invited to admire the ingenuity of the ways in which the... Um, inventions had been sort of retrofitted with steam or something. And yet it's been done much more carefully than that. I mean I was striking, you know, the sort of the um Bar Songhai, the, the their mysterious earths and I'd been reading this for a while and I said and I thought, oh God, we're talking about nuclear, aren't we? Radioactivity.
2: Yes, exactly.
0: But it, it, it was sort of, it was there, but not there. And then at the same time, the, the sort of thing that struck me about that example in particular, it was the knowledge was exactly the same as The scientists of this world have sort of gathered, but it was just cast from a different perspective. They'd all reached the same conclusion that this stuff is really dangerous and you had to be really, really careful of it. But it wasn't being heavily signalled. It's like when you get alternative worlds and they've all got coffee in them. (laughs) <laughs> and they all want to frantically signal to you that that's the coffee analogue because you need to know about the coffee analogue. You think, oh, no, please not again. Whereas this was never in your face and you, you could read the whole thing quite happily and maybe miss the cues, but you'd still get the same effect. You know, you'd still sort of understand that this was a another form of energy and there was something unusual about it. And I liked a little bit towards the end where uh, one of the characters recognises as this, this what sort of European scientists would call pitch blend, you know, same thing. So the connection was actually made, but almost in passing. Two different societies, two different cultures had found the same substances, had come to the same conclusions about them, chose to express their understanding of how they worked in slightly different ways, but the end result was the same. I really, really like that. You know, you read those novels where We're back in deep history and a person has suddenly figured out agriculture or a person has suddenly figured out steam. And you know that it's standing in for the fact that probably lots of people are coming to the same conclusion. But it it always feels very, um, well, yes, extremely artificial and contrived, whereas this seemed to be all the way through. There was this natural exchange of ideas, different groups of people bringing ideas together. And you could see the anxieties at times as different cultures wondered what this would mean for them. But there was always this sort of consistent thread of people being interested in working together to improve what they'd got by utilising other people's ideas rather than dismissing them because they thought it came from somewhere else, and therefore it's inevitably going to be inimical to us. Of course, that was sort of set off against various, uh, you know, people's prejudices, like, you know, like Martha Alban's conviction yes. that you know, Bibles we needed Bibles before <sighs> anything else. And I, I thought actually she was very interestingly presented all the way through in the way that she was struggling with you know she wanted to keep bringing it back to the for the need to, for Christianity above all else, but she was constantly being not quite undermined but confronted with alternatives that she really didn 't quite know how to process
2: and I think i 'd like to jump off that a little bit because she was not the only character, and in fact very many of the characters brought a strong ideology and sense of the world with them. I mean, not only is there the utopian socialist founding, and then there, the the hymn, I, I have to take a moment and just say that I, despite being a very bad singer, really enjoy communal singing. And so I was won over by Everfair by the, the national anthem and the formation of the <laughs> national anthem. But then yes, Martha is bringing her... Religion and Christianity, the king has very strong ideas about how he's supposed to be making decisions. So I felt like a lot of what was going on in Everfair was that it was kind of very honest about the ways that diversity can be really hard because you can bring very strong convictions. And even if you are bringing both very strong convictions and a lot of goodwill, You can make mistakes on the micro level and you can make mistakes on the macro level in how you are treating other people and how communities and societies can work together. Because it turns out that if you spend your time working on socialist ideology and working class, then you miss the power of saying, let's form a community together. And if you say, Mm. we are all going to be equal now, then you miss the fact that you have just displaced the king and all the people who used to live here. And they have strong ideas about the fact that they should really be in charge. And- those conflicts i feel like really played out on both the macro and micro level and i think that that was some of what i struggled with the first time i read it because i wanted the unified story of everfair and i think part of the point is you don't get the unified story (laughs) of anything because it is not
0: no, no, exactly. I loved the way she was still pushing this right at the end. You know, that point where you think, oh, you know, everybody lives happily ever after well, is what you're, you're expecting after all their travails. And no, no, it's going to keep on not disintegrating, but there will be dispersal. It felt true. I don't normally go into fiction looking for truth in that way, but this felt true in a way that extended beyond the novel, if that makes sense.
1: I think as well that it's quite rare to have characters in a lot of in a lot of science fiction, but also in a lot of literature in general, who live in their worlds in ways that I recognise mm. as being engaged. I mean, you can absolutely imagine these characters having these massively fraught arguments about the news, the causes of the war, mm. um, etc. Because that is the sort of people they are. They live in the world and they're aware of what's happening around them and they have thoughts about, th- about I those I think happenings.
0: actually, too, what I have is a sense that in the gaps between our various sightings of them, you have the sense of that going on. You know, and yeah, exactly. Have, they've mm-hmm. had the discussions, we've been away. As the reader, you know, we've been away and we've come back to catch up with what they're doing. Then we have to figure out what they have done while we've been away. Because obviously, when you sort of meet somebody, you don't have a a massive info dump of what's been going on in one another's lives. So you're having to sort of constantly figure it out from things they say and what's going on around them. You know, as you said, they're they're quite definitely having those arguments just around the corner. I found in the end, actually, I, I cared about them all very much.
1: I think I cared about them more than I would have in a more conventional narrative structure where I'd actually been walked through their relationships and their ideas and their experiences over that period of time.
0: It's interesting to actually be able to contemplate what they're trying to do as individuals, and they're all sort of driven by the same sort of earnest conviction that they're doing the right thing. You know, there's actually very few people you meet in the story who are outright, outrightly bad. Um, you know, possible Thornhill the assassin. Yeah. But very, very few of the other people are actually sort of bad people. They're all very focused and motivated, but they in some instances, are so focused on the one thing, um, I mean, like Martha, that they don't actually find it very easy to um, you know sort of see anything from anyone else's point of view. I mean, in a way, you actually, I find the same of uh, of Daisy Albin. You know, she's still at the very end fretting about the fact that Fwendy and Matty might actually marry, you know. And, oh, you know, this, this, <laughs> this, this would be too, too terrible. And you think, have you not learned anything during this? And I think, <laughs> No, you haven't really, have you? This is your going to be your persistent prejudice, whatever happens. You're not actually going to be able to dig that one out. You're not going to be able to deal with that. And fortunately, they appear to live happily ever after without um, sort of interfering. It's like your gently racist mum or your gently racist <laughs> auntie, isn't it? You know, you think, oh, what do I do?
1: There's a really beautiful moment that is quite near the end where um, Daisy once again brings up her whole plan to have a day to commemorate Jackie, Lisette. Once again, and again, you you get that you get the feeling that this debate has been going on a lot more off the page as well. Mm. But once again, Lisette is not in favour for obvious reasons. And then there's a moment where Lisette is just feeling utterly defeated by the fact that Daisy is never actually going to get this. Mm. Yeah, there's this lovely bit about um where Lisette sobs inwardly with the fear that there would never be anything more between them than these meetings for the sight and scent of love but not its touch. And it's just that that thing where they everyone means so well and everyone is trying so hard, but there are some ways in which these people are never going to be able to to fully understand each other and fully come together and fully commit to each other. Mm. And it's both completely understandable and deeply tragic.
0: I found it interesting, too, that the number of these characters, I mean, like Daisy Albin, appears to be quite closely related to E. Nesbitt in some respects. There seem to be some similarities of situation. I did wonder whether Matty uh, was... uh, some kind of. I wasn't quite sure who he might be, but um, I had a sense I was supposed to know who he was in another world. The, the
1: obvious one is Thomas, the Reverend, who is some form of George Washington Williams. Yes. But not, well, obviously, alternate universe. Yes.
0: Yes, and it's, it's quite fascinating the way those little resonances. Did you notice, too, all those odd little sly references to Peter Pan? I noticed a couple. I don't think I not
1: not that many though.
0: Are there more? Sorry, um, this white bird—that thing that J.M. Barry wrote. But it's talking later about Wendy La, and there were sort of other things I suspect are lurking in there. That um, so, sort of this this interesting idea of also never and ever playing off against one another. And I may be going way way too far now, but
1: no. But I really like that as a possibility.
0: It's just quite intriguing, isn't it? Was there ever a more problematic concept than Never Neverland? I mean of course too we've got all the sort of uh, the H. Ryder Haggerty bit. Young George Olbin wanting to prove himself, you think oh this could turn into a disaster, he's (sighs) going to try and sort of be Alan Quartermain or whoever.
1: Thought about that bit in part because one of the things that you that you keep getting with the Haggerty sort of book is the concept of little bits of Africa that are unexplored and still claimable. Mm. And the, the ways in which those books, that whole genre uses the geography of all of Africa to keep making more bits of it that can be imagined into new kingdoms. Because obviously, Everfair is partly writing back to writing back to that tradition, but also writing in that tradition.
2: Well shall we turn from Everfair towards a more realistic setting and one also grounded in real world history because I need help with temporary. <laughs> <laughs> I remember passages of it that I very much enjoyed and passages that I was very lost in. Aisha, can you introduce us to Temporary People and some of the things that you particularly connected with?
1: Temporary People is a collection of short stories that may in some ways link to form a larger narrative, but in some ways also don't, that are set in and around the experience of labourers from the south of India, so um, from Kerala, Malayali workers, who go to the Gulf. And it's very hard to explain this to other people, really, because this is, if you're Indian, this is just a phenomenon that you know about, that there is this huge ongoing movement between Um, between Kerala and the Gulf states. So people move to these countries usually because the job prospects are better, but then also find themselves frequently abused, underpaid, legally quite precarious. In one of the stories in this collection, a man literally transforms into a passport that allows another man to escape the country because sometimes you lose your passport. People, um, as in your employer, will take it, and then you're stuck there. And one of the things that I found really interesting about this, apart from the polyphonic nature of it, again, was it uses language in really complex and interesting ways. It uses reality in really interesting ways. When I started reading, I wasn't entirely sure... How the stories will link together, obviously they are about a similar experience being retold from di- in different ways, but do they exist in the same universe? Are they subject to the same natural laws? Uh, they're not, as far as I can tell.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So you do have these common threads and these common themes that just that keep recurring through the stories. I just thought it was a really fascinating collection in the use of not quite genre, but just the the freedom to do whatever with those stories. The ways they go between quite science fictional, quite magical realist. I I don't want to say Kafkaesque because the internet will hate me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's only because there's a cockroach in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> There is, isn't there?
2: there? are a few different stories that centre around the cockroaches.
0: Yeah, cockroaches are very um,
1: they're very important to this text, collection of texts.
0: One of my favourite American novels is uh, John Dos Passos, Manhattan Transfer. It's that sort of idea of you're know, kind of walking down the street and each story is handing on to another piece of story. It's not Quite the same as that, but there's a sort of sense of it's like you're standing in the middle of a group of people and sort of turning around gradually, and everything they're thinking or experiencing is being broadcast at you, and you're having to try and disentangle it as you go. You know, it's almost like you're not meant to, or you can't make complete sense of it. I think I read it more like a novel than a series of short stories, you know, sort of taking that Dos Passos idea of the story being handed off from one person to another. As, as 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 you move through a place. And I like the idea that it comes at me in so many different ways that I can choose to interpret, you know, through genre perceptions. I mean like the, the story with the lift. You know, yeah. Kind of just, wow, that's great. <laughs> out and out horror story. It's really quite astonishing. It's um you know, formerly so exciting too, the the way in which it's constructed and playing with language. And then at basic at the end of it there's this this lift that's eating kiddies and doing things to them. It's really quite extraordinary and wonderful thing. And then you saw something like chapter three, you know, Privasis, that list just yeah. of you know things that people might be. Visa keeps coming into it, and you know, non-resident <laughs> worker, non-citizens workers, workers, visa, people, visas, workers, worker. I, I love the way that it's something very reductive about it, you know, what, what people are.
1: I think one of the reasons I find it so difficult to talk about is because the experiences it's, so, it's getting at are of people who, it, it, it's in the title, they are temporary people, they're persons <gasps> who... Sort of in this constant state of negotiation. They're not citizens. They are temporary workers. In some cases, they don't have ways of proving their own identities or their identities are stolen from them. Sometimes they're not real people at all. Sometimes they are literally manufactured to be labour. I think, particularly in the context of the other two books that we're talking about, which are. Very specifically about nations and nationhood in quite direct ways. This one sits really uncomfortably because Mm. these aren't, they can't be members of a nation. They are, they're not real people in the way that the nation understands people.
0: It's like it's constantly, uh, you know, identity is constantly dissolving, whereas in Everfair, and I think too in the Winged Histories, there's a constant movement towards um, consolidating identity.
1: Yeah, I think, so in Everfair, a lot of the time, people's identities are consolidated partly by bouncing off each other. Yes. And in temporary people, people sort of dissolve into each other.
0: Yes. I mean, actually, one of the things that strikes me in various places is the informal support systems that exist, like the um, story birds the one Anna Varghese worked in Abu Dhabi she she taped people specifically she taped construction workers who fell from incomplete buildings yeah and there's that sort of idea of you know she's been doing this for a long time and she's got a developed a kind of little community about her you know around herself and people will she's involved people know that she's the person to go to the, the person who will sort of bring some help in some ways
1: and even there, the, the solutions and those and those support networks are very – they're about patching things up. Again, they're temporary. Yeah,
0: there's something really quite amazing about that story. I really, really like it. That's,
1: that is that is an incredible story, and having that right at the beginning mm. is great for the book, but also it's just a really good short story on its own, as well as the way it stands in relation to, to the others.
0: Yeah, I think it's actually some of these – I think if they were, if you took the, the the collection apart, they they don't stand on their own, and they cannot stand on their own, and I suspect they're probably not intended to stand on their own. But there's various various stories, and that is one of them that, that do, you know, they they have a life apart from it. It's like when you're the only child and you marry into a massive family, and this is great, <laughs> I think, and then suddenly you got. Who are all these people? You know, how how do they all fit together? It, it becomes overwhelming. You spend ages trying to figure out everybody's stories and how they how everybody is related to everybody else, and you probably never quite figure it out.
1: And if you're at, if you're at like a wedding reception or something, they're all talking at once anyway. So again, you're just getting bits and pieces of what's going on around you.
0: Yes, I mean actually, that idea of a, a babble of voices, I think, is quite important for this one. The reader is actually put in a position where everybody contained within this um, collection has a chance to tell their story. And they all want to tell their story at once because they don't actually get that chance very often. So the the reader becomes a kind of captive audience and everybody's vying (laughs) for the reader's attention. Does that work?
1: That does. That does sort of work. Very much, yeah. One of the things it reminded me of was a book that (laughs) I read and evangelised about, that was both unavailable in most of the world, and (laughs) completely impenetrable. So almost no one actually took me up on this. But um, there was a book by a, I think, Bangladeshi Canadian writer called Kalab Islam, called Fire in the Unnameable Country. And it's, in some ways, very different to temporary people in that it's mostly one person's narrative, though with many, many caveats. But it's got the same sense of being about a particular experience and trying to tell that experience in ways that are quite slanted, quite metaphorical, quite unreal. And also in the sense of, The languages it plays with and the ways, the ways that knowing the languages in question enriches your reading of the text. Yes. Because I know that there's definitely a, there's, I'm probably missing some of the Malayalam stuff because I don't actually speak Malayalam, but I have family members who do. So there were definitely little bits and pieces that I picked up on and saw what he was doing. But there's also some Hindi in there. Somewhere he's introduced his book um, by t- um, talking about it as Malayalam slang finessed in an Indian school on Emirati soil, jazzed up thanks to American Arabic and British television, which makes sense. Um, obviously, it makes sense for him as an author, but also um, you can you can see echoes of all of those things in there
0: mm. mm-hmm. yes i mean i'm i'm very mindful of the fact that there's a lot of this i'm not getting because i'm no, no familiarity with any of the languages that aren't english because of course i'm I'm well, not as monolingual as some but i'm definitely quite monolingual but anyway, i'm sort of very conscious of the fact that there's areas of this book that i cannot access you know that, that they can only ever be hinted at I, I, I so some awareness of the fact that groups of workers are coming from other parts of the world to work in the Gulf states yeah you know, i mean particularly the controversy about the conditions at the moment of um, yeah. workers um, building the stadiums for the world cup
1: yeah that was one of the things that really did make it to international news
0: again that drops away doesn't it you know it's it's there for a little bit and then we think what's happening to these people yeah you know, what, what's going on now the news isn't focused on them anymore i'm very struck where he talks about the United Arab Emirates, you know, where foreign nationals constitute over 80% of the population. It is a nation built by people who are eventually required to leave.
2: One of the stories is specifically about requiring people to leave, right? Yeah. There's one where the idea is is everyone is going to have to,
0: it reminded me terribly in a way. It was almost like it was a riposte to the Ray Bradbury story, the title of which is, I'm now blanking on, but in the Martian Chronicles, where all the African-Americans take ship um, and they all uh, go to Mars. I think they go to Mars. And there are people trying trying to stop them. And there's a sort of glorious moment where it doesn't matter because they are all going to go together, and everybody's leaving. And it's almost like it's kind of riffing off that, but at the same time, they're not leaving because they want to leave. I'm sort of struck by the thought: what is the the end effect, You know, the net, net effect of that departure, the effect it has on those left behind, or sort of suddenly they've got to do the things themselves. There is nobody there to do it for them. Yeah, you know, I, I find something quite interesting about that. That idea of, of mass departure and what it actually says you know for those who are left behind and uh, having sort of face the effects of the choices and decisions they've made about how the country's going to be organized and um, you know put together i mean literally put together
1: i've I've just opened that story chapter nine Akbar exodus, but i've just opened it and and opened it at the page. A reporter from the BBC puts the spokesman on the spot. Our understanding is that many of these men came here in the seventies. Will the government acknowledge their contributions before they leave? Oh my God! And I'm just, like, yeah, exactly. Um,
2: <laughs> this is windrush, right? Yeah, it, yes. it does. It,
1: it it feels that way. It it wouldn't have occurred to me when I was reading it, but um, this week it's very hard to think of anything else.
0: Yes, very much so. I'm old enough to just sort of remember some of the groups of West Indians coming to Oxford. You know, I mean, I was quite little, but I remember how they were sort of there they were a lot of them in Oxford, were um, bus drivers, and uh, we still had conductors in those days. So we had bus conductors. So we had all these, um, these guys, you know, sort of with uh, different accents, you know, collecting the bus tickets and selling the bus tickets and things like that. And they're very vivid in my childhood. So I'm sure they were in lots of other places as well, but they were there. And I just cannot believe now. But yeah, that really, really does resonate. It
1: it really does. It's just, again, I think one of the things that drew me to this was specifically questions of citizenship and precariousness and and immigrants and their precarious positions legally and in every other way. At the point when I... When I suggested that we read this, I wasn't entirely sure whether when we talked about it, I would be in the UK or in India. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not entirely sure where I'll be six months from now. It's, you, it, it all feels a little um, close to the bone in some ways. And obviously, I am extremely privileged compared to the majority of the people in this book in the kind of legal and generally, what are, what does one call um, paperwork apart from legal?
2: I think it is an ideologically freighted term, no matter what one ends up choosing.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: Well, I'm actually going back to Everfair. Well, that's one of the interesting things there, the ideological freighting of the whole thing. And even more so um, here, because in many ways, in temporary people, it's it's less articulated, but actually more vividly expressed in experience, if that makes sense.
2: Yes, I think that experience is a mm. very key piece of this. I am remembering advice that I got on reading Annihilation, which was to read carefully without... Careful attention without mastery was the phrase. Because the, the points where I had... Difficulty with it were the points where I started saying, okay, how do I stack all of these stories up? And the parts that I think I was most successful with were first of all, some, some of the stories are just amazing and, and the images are amazing. But also, I think maybe rather than trying to stack the book into a structure, seeing it as jumbled together and enjoying the ways that all those jumbles can fit together each time.
0: Yes, having sort of read it once and thought, and then sort of uh, you know, come back to try and uh, read it again. Uh, I, the second time I read it, actually thinking I have just got to let this wash over me. I have to let it sweep me away and um, sort of carry me on the tide of the words and images and um, see what I I have with me by the time I get to the shore. And if I do it again, I'll I'll bring different things with me, and those are the things that are going to be most important to me at that particular moment.
1: I want to mention, though not necessarily talk about it, because I don't know that I have much to say about it, the moment in one of the stories, sort of midway through the first part, I think, where we discover the the attempted creation of this sort of subaltern nation state, that mm-hmm. we discover that they have an anthem and everything, partly because the other two books that we're talking about do think about nation-states and also because in this case the nation-state gets shut down quite quickly. But um, it was just very (laughs) pleasing to me when I was reading it to have that sudden thread pop out. Oh, and I also want to mention the story where the tongue runs away. Yes. Because I've talked about the use of language and the, the playing around with multiple languages and so on. And I think that particular story literalises so much of what's happening in the other stories and it's just completely brilliant to read
0: but also actually it sort of really brings out that idea of um of the people involved as bodies that it's okay to sort of you know break them apart you don't actually see them as people you know, it's like at the beginning you have um, anna farghe is taping people back together yeah and when the tongue runs away it's this sort of vivid expression of the fact that these these people are just a series of parts. Well, also that early
1: story where the three men run away and they turn into a man, a passport and a suitcase. Yes. So there's just a lot in it, and some of it is honestly quite brilliant.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I don't think it's an easy read, but I think it's a very rewarding read. And again, it's much more overtly even than, uh, than ever fair, inviting you to look at the structure of narrative as well. Test your expectations of a narrative, what a narrative should be, and i 'm always up for that. I also love the idea of going back to the horror lift one, the idea of uh, childbearers being um, <laughs> called manufacturers. normally manufacturers comprise two parents <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. but it
0: 's interesting that because it, sort of, it says it 's a very vivid glimpse into how a world is defined by construction. This is not a natural process. It's become even something like conception, gestation, birth of a child has become a kind of mechanistic thing. It's it's got no existence as something natural. They're they're manufacturers. They they make things.
1: That also feeds into what you said earlier about the thinness of bodies in this world. And also to that story where new labour is literally being manufactured rather than born.
2: Yes, imagine how well not even imagine how convenient that would be in so very many ways for some of the group of people. All right, I think I'm going to turn us to The Winged Histories, which is Sophia Samatar's second book in the world of Alondria, and it is a story of four women during A war, and I think it's the same war that we saw in Stranger in Elandria. I think so. Yes. There is Tav, the swordswoman, who, uh, is very closely related to the emperor and runs away to go, to go be a soldier. There is then Tialan, who is the daughter of the priests of the stone and grew up in the palace, but very, very isolated. There's Saren, the singer and the poet, who is in love with Tavis for a while. And then there is Siski, Tavis's sister, who uh, went off to fall in love and then um, that uh, didn't work out as she had planned. And I have to admit that the first time I read this, I have a very vivid memory early on of reading, and I was bringing, reading the Winged Histories sort of in in (laughs) trump had been president for almost a year and yet it still felt like in the wake of of him coming to power and tav is coming to grips with the fact that she has lived a very privileged life in an empire that she has come to not want to be part of and in fact lead a rebellion against and that's complicated like she she lived this life of privilege. She has lots of like nice memories, and also the whole thing is sort of crumbling and coming apart, and that is very difficult for her. And I was feeling like I have lived a privileged life in something that I am increasingly becoming aware is a very dangerous and harmful empire, and many things are coming apart, and that's very hard for me. And I was reading the Winged Histories and seeing myself in The Swordswoman. And I fell in love with the book, and I enjoyed many other parts of it, and that is by far my strongest memory and reaction. Uh, even, even having read it twice now, so I'm curious for either of you what what do you what what clicked and connected for you?
1: For me, there's, there's little sort of incidents within all four narratives that suddenly just jump out and feel intensely familiar and real so for example as you say Tav is on the one hand one of the people most who benefits most by the empire as it stands and her but her breaking away from it also involves a huge amount of privilege her relationship with The other people who are breaking away from, who are trying to break away from the empire, um, involves a huge amount of, a huge disparity in power. And I just thought that that was really interestingly and, and complexly dealt with the ways in which, in which she does understand to a great extent the destructiveness of Alondria, but doesn't always Fully understand herself within that, her own position within that. That part of her narrative felt very important to me. And and then, of course, you get to Seren's narrative where she calls out Tav a lot. Yes. Which is brilliant. And again, very upsetting because once again, you've got, as with Everfair, you've got a romance that is disrupted or shattered or somethinged by that inability for the characters to get past the power relations which which they can't get get past. They they, they exist within them. So I loved that. I also as much as I love that this is a story told by four women I both do and don't want um, Dacia's story. That's a really good narrative. That's a really, really good arc. I want to see what that's like from the inside, and I'm both quite glad that we don't, because I like—I really like how in both of these books the actual reality of war and rebellion is dealt with, but is dealt with quite. dealt with at a remove in some ways even though with Tavis you've got a literal instigator of the current political situation it still feels that we're it still feels like we're at a remove from the action.
2: Yeah I mean most of her action that you see is the leading up to it and the aftermath and I think even the aftermath is not it's it's from Saren's perspective.
1: Yeah. And Saren's yeah. position in this is again quite quite different and less immediate.
2: Yeah, I like that in some ways it is saying that sort of the the least interesting part of the civil war that crumbles the empire is
1: the civil war, is, that, crumbles the the civil
2: war that crumbles the empire. <laughs> it is instead the 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 people that it happens to and the ways that it happened, and of course, there are all of those those beautiful passages in Saren's section where she is rethinking how you tell heroic stories. That's just wonderful.
0: I think the story that actually I find most interesting is, um, I mean, they're all great, but I'm very intrigued by the story of uh, Tierlon, Ifram's daughter. Her story is so terrible in so many ways. You know, sort of, her father is a monster driven by his beliefs, which in the end, his entire life seems to be a disappointment to him. And she, meanwhile, has um, lost the uh, only person she's ever actually loved. And now, at the end of it all, she's sort of sitting there as the war rages around her, uh, trying to figure out what she's actually supposed to do. You know, she's literally got nothing except um, what she's got from her father who's spent his entire life pretty much oppressing her and trying to strip her life of any kind of pleasure, you know, in the name of uh, his his religion. I think what fascinates me so much is she's so static. You know, she's just sitting in her room waiting, and yet there's all this going on inside her head.
2: And I think it's interesting, your comment that her father is kind of a monster is, of course, true. And also, it didn't occur to me very much at first because it doesn't occur to her. That it would be very easy to describe this life from outside of her experience and see it as horrible. And yet, it it is what she has known.
0: Yes, I'm trying to think of a way of um, encompassing that. It's actually not easy because when you look at it, it actually seems quite straightforward. You know, she's never really had much of a life because of her father. And yet, when you sort of start looking at it in more detail, there's a level on which she knows what has happened to her is wrong. But it's at the same time. All she's got, and she knows that it's all she's got and she said you know if only he would come back and stand over me again in the way I hated so much when I was a girl, you know sort of the man is gone, but she's she's mourning him because of course he's her father um and theres there's that attachment, however one-sided it might be, you know because he he did not behave like a father, yet he's all she's ever had you know as a father, that sort of contradiction, the tension between her desire to be normal and yet she can't let go of her father. And then you turn the page and he's, he's a, when he had shed his name, left the capital cut off relations with nearly all of his family and friends, when he had become this harsh young man, Ivrom, the mirror of the stone, he still remembered the pink peppercorn tree in his aunt's garden in Bain and you think, oh, you know, this that terrible little moment of beauty locked inside him.
2: Yes. Aisha, is there another another section another direction that struck you?
1: So one of the things I think that really worked for me was, first of all, the stone itself Mm. and the ways that that so much of our attention is on that question of text and text being overwritten with other text and what is significant and what isn't and is is, is this an important religious message or is it just something someone wrote, um, the equivalent of a shopping list. So that, that sense of meaning just piled up and interpretable and the way that that bounces off the the other uses of text throughout the book.
2: There is a passage, I think, relatively early on, About the various noble families that have come to be in the Empire, and at least one of them being descended from the sort of vampire monsters, and the notion of that sort of coming back to haunt them later. And I'm going to give a spoiler here, so readers beware, but of course the monsters come back. (laughs) Um, And... Yes, there are so many parts of this book in which the texts and the stories and the ways in which they are significant, there are many ways in which they are significant, um, in much the same way that you can read the stone and wonder how much significance to attribute. What does it mean that there is the founding myth of this empire and the, the truth of the founding myth is related to the different ways that various families have connected. And also the founding myth turns out to be literally true and a real problem.
1: There's a wonderful moment where Seren, I think, points out that the myth of the noble ancestors who rode giant birds and the myth of the scary vampire people are, in her language, they use the same words because... Death coming from the sky is pretty much the same if you're on the ground. Here we are. Uh, you came out of the sky, a legend. They have begun to call you Shastuan now, the winged. And in Kesteni, the word for vampire is Shastladhi. It means the flying lath. You draw a distinction between the Drevadi, whom you call monsters, and the ancient laths riding on great birds. We do not. All of them come from the sky and all of them kill. I do not want to remember this winged predators from the valley. And at the same time, I don't want to forget. Mm. I love the idea of even within spoken language at the level of the words itself. There's this, um, there's this sense of contested meaning depending on who's doing the
2: speaking. So what about Siski? I was prepared to be very angry with her before we got her story, <laughs> which is probably the point <laughs>
0: Yeah, I I think you may be right,
2: yes.
1: Yeah, I think we're definitely invited to read her in certain ways that are, again, informed by a lot of our reading of genre that get undermined as we actually encounter her.
0: Siski is the one who ends up sort of marrying in order to um, help save the family, isn't she?
2: Her family has planned for her to marry the prince...
1: And something happens.
2: And for Tav, that something means sort of the end of the idyllic childhood. And for Tav, when she returns, Siski is being very determinedly the society sister without any real morals or kindness or understanding, just sort of flitting among her privilege when
0: i was reading I, I i kept thinking of sort of late 19th century russian novels when i came to the bits with siski in them not necessarily sort of anna karenina i think maybe more sort of bits of um war and peace there was a kind of distinct flavor of people stuck with uh i suppose with a sort of unsustainable lifestyle but their position demands that they they keep on doing this they can't actually walk away um do something else even though they are I suppose almost literally bankrupting themselves you know, because that's what they've been trained to do that's the way they've been taught to live in a way that uh, Tav hasn't been You know, Tav has been able to walk away from it and go and do what she wants to do and be a warrior whereas Siski is some, somehow I don't know sort of like, I find it interesting actually that Siski um, makes me think of the bird Siskin You know, that sort of kind of fluttery quality of being trapped somehow in this beautiful, beautiful cage
2: she is constrained almost as much, and in many of the same ways, as T'Elon. She just can't imagine what it would be to be outside of that.
0: It's quite hard to engage with her, and then as time goes on, and you sort of see her caught in this, you feel a kind of sympathy. You cannot help but feel a kind of sympathy. Mm -hmm. She's trying to do what she can, but at the same time, there is no way out of it.
1: I think that when you see her from outside, so when you see her from Tavis's perspective, it's easy to think of her as being oblivious yes. of what's going on around her. And the minute you realise that she isn't, that she's well aware of what's happening, mm-hmm. but isn't necessarily in a position to to do very much about it, um she suddenly becomes a much more sympathetic character and also you start there is obviously a period in between where she um is quite a mess but you also start seeing her um using the rules of the world that she that she is trapped in ways that are conscious and deliberate
0: yes that's the point when she becomes Anna Karenina, if you like. <laughs> no, it's actually, I find it quite interesting when a novel is working quite determinedly in one area, and then you see these kind of, these resonances with, you know, things you've read elsewhere. It reminds you that the um, things resonate across genres and how artificial those ideas can be. When I read this, it did speak very strongly to me of bits of war and peace and indeed bits of Anna Karenina and that sort of same sense of being caught in a system that is long past its, you know, long since ceased to have a a, a useful purpose and to actually be viable. But people are sort of desperately um, continuing to perform it because that's all they know how to do. And there's a sense of inevitability that this, um, this set of structures must pass and do you sort of keep, going right to the end, hoping you can maintain what you're used to, because it is all you're used to? Or do you have the the strength and the, you know, are you forward-looking enough to be able to let go of it? And of course, the truth is, um, you know, whatever we're in, we, we very frequently tend to cling to that with which we're familiar, even if it's no longer working, because it does actually, it's what we know. It's funny, Maureen, I'm remembering one
2: of the early book clubs that we did and of course those also had had fairly obvious resonances and yet there was the certain amount of exercise of sort of how do we make see if these books talk to each other and I think that these three talk very directly to each other and I think it is interesting the point about the polyphony of voices and I think also the ways in which they talk around power structures in in much the way that that the wink histories is not actually talking about the war when it tells the story of the war or not actually telling the story of the war when talking about the war because it's very much talking about the war but i i think that it's interesting to see those very similar techniques
0: and i think interesting too to see how they can be taken in such different directions as well you know the how many different ways there are of talking about these kinds of issues which um I always appreciate.
1: From a purely genre perspective, if you said you were going to read an epic fantasy, uh, a nineteenth-century alternate history, and a collection of modern-day magical realistic short stories, you wouldn't necessarily be expecting them to be thematically coherent in quite this way.
0: Mm. I know, and yet they, I think they, they, they turn out as as a group to actually have a great deal to say to one another, which I, I think is really awesome. So it's, it's actually been very satisfying to read the three of them.
2: Yes. I do wonder how I'm going to feel the next time I read an essay or I'm talking to someone who says, oh, yes, genre does this. Fantasy, <laughs> Fantasy is well equipped to do this. Science <laughs> fiction manages that so well. <laughs> uh, because I think that one thing about these is that they <laughs> they do sort of explode the myth that genre determines.
0: More and more, the more I read, the older I get. I really don't think that. I think it's a useful way of exploring uh, practically any subject. You know, it's, it's a lens through which to examine a subject, but I do not believe anymore that genre does determine. It's I still a, think
1: there are specific things and specific effects that genre, that particular genres can do that nothing else quite can. But yeah, I think in terms of actual subject matter, um, no. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, thank you both very much. I have really really enjoyed this no
0: it's been an absolute pleasure i've really really enjoyed this i've been looking forward to this for ages i'm so glad we've been able to sit down and do it it's great i always enjoy a book club discussion thanks for listening to this special episode of critical friends the strange horizons sff criticism podcast our theme music is Dial-Up by Lost Cosmonauts. You can hear more of their music at grandvalise.bandcamp.com. Thanks again to Jonas Adam morse for allowing us to use this audio, and again to you for listening to it. And most of all, thanks Maureen. We miss you.